Now Audrey is going to read scripture for us. Our scripture reading is from 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through 11. This is found on page 1018 in the Pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, please take one from us as a gift. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way... There will be richly provided for you an entrance into eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Shelley and Audrey. Good morning. My name is Anthony Emerson. I'm one of the other pastors here. Uh, Christ Community Brookside. If this is your first time, thank you for joining us. We're glad that you're here. If this is your first time, uh, you just missed out on our 57-week sermon series through the book of Matthew. We're beginning a new series today called Vices and Virtues. We're going to go through a different vice and its corresponding virtue over the next seven weeks, so it's a little bit shorter. Um, And today, the Apostle Peter sets up this conversation for us on vices and virtues. Uh, What exactly we're talking about when we say vice and virtue and why they're important to us. So as we begin, would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for the day that you have made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Thank you for the gift of jazz music. Thank you for the gift of families. Thank you for the gift of this church body, uh, this church family. Uh, And we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time, this brief time to study it. Would you teach us? Would you speak clearly, Spirit, this morning? We wait on you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. The world hungers for virtuous people. Whether we realize it or not, we are constantly looking for coworkers, for neighbors, for schoolmates, for family members, for leaders who live with real virtue. I remember watching a panel discussion on a prominent cable news show a little while ago about the election. The panelists were from different sides of the political spectrum, and they got into the conversation, of course, not long into it, they began to disagree. But then pretty soon, they began to lose their tempers, 
to shout at each other. They refused to listen to others' viewpoints. They were disagreeing. They couldn't take it. I mean, I couldn't take it. So I changed the channel to a different news station. Unfortunately, they were having a panel discussion too, and it wasn't any better. This was not just a couple guys at a bar who had a little bit too much to drink and began to argue. These were professional journalists and political experts, carefully selected, handsomely paid. They had one job, to have a thoughtful discussion. They couldn't do it. You could see it in their crimson faces. You could hear it in their strained voices. None of them had any personal resources to deal with the anger that was welling up inside them, that soon controlled them, that in effect ended the conversation. And how tragically representative this is of our current political climate, right? We can't even have a conversation half the time. Too many of us lack the virtue necessary for healthy dialogue with people we disagree with. In this instance, the virtue of patience. That's frustrating. And it's not where anyone wants to be. No one wants to be there. The world, whether we realize it or not, hungers for virtue, for virtuous people. If you look at the housing crisis a few years ago, what played into that? Greed, predatory lending, neglectful government policies, unwise borrowing decisions that largely stemmed from a lack of virtue on all sides. If you look at the breakdown of the family in parts of our society, if you look at the racial injustice in this country, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, there's a shortcoming of virtue. The world needs and hungers for virtuous people. So the answer is the church, right? The church should be producing virtuous people by the thousands. Jesus, as we saw throughout Matthew, taught and invited us into the good life, the virtuous life. His followers, his church is the answer then, right? Sadly, it's often not the case. For example, there's the story of, it's the true story of a senior pastor who during a morning service, right after finishing his sermons, took one of his staff members into his office and berated them harshly for a mistake they had made earlier in the service. The service was still going on in the sanctuary at this point, and the pastor apparently dealt with pretty serious anger issues because he cursed and threatened and screamed at this poor staff member. What he didn't know is his lapel mic was still on, was broadcasting everything he said to the entire church. That's just one example of a shortcoming of virtue. That's who he was being exposed in the church. A lot of us in this room have been burned in one way or another by the church. It too is often, as it shouldn't be, but is often lacking in and hungry for virtuous people. And you and I know that it's not just these broad categories of society and the church 
we're virtue, it's lacking, it's, it's us, it's you, it's me. You and I hunger to be virtuous people, to become more virtuous, to be the kind of people who have good flowing out of them just by default. But we so often fail and fall short, are unable to get past besetting sins, cannot seem to get rid of habits that we wish we didn't have, aren't able to respond in the moment like we would wish we would. Why do we struggle with this so much? Why are there not more virtuous people we can point to? Where are they? Why is this? I think it's in large part because we fail to grasp the call that the Apostle Peter gives to us in our passage this morning. This is the call in 2 Peter. Run after virtue or be trampled by vice. There's not much middle ground there. Run after virtue or be trampled by vice. Now, if you're wondering what exactly do we mean by virtue and what exactly do we mean by vice, we'll get to that quickly. But let me first note that in 2 Peter 1, we're given three reasons why this call to run after virtue or be trampled by vice is vital for us to grasp. That's what we're looking at this morning, three reasons why we we need to get this call from Peter. The first reason is that vice doesn't wait for your attention. Vice doesn't wait for your attention. Now, what, what is vice? What do we mean by this? Well, a vice is not the worst thing that you can do. Uh, throughout this series, we're going to talk about seven of them, referred to since 590 A.D. as the seven deadly sins, which you may have heard of before, also known as the seven capital vices, envy, vainglory, sloth, greed, anger, gluttony, lust. And you hear deadly sins, and you hear that list… And some of you are like, deadly sins. I did all those before breakfast, and I'm fine. (laughs) These are normal, everyday sins, aren't they? Except they aren't. No, they're not the worst thing you can do. They're not murder. But they are the habits, if left untreated, that can blind us, bind us, and ultimately will trample us. It's like consistent, ongoing smoking or eating a cheeseburger every single day. Big deal. Small habit. Feels like nothing in the moment, but it will kill you. Imagine your life like a tree. Uh, A vice is like a virus that slowly attacks the roots. Small, unnoticed, but vicious. They are the habits that become our character, that become who we are, become our identity. They shape and enslave us. And some of you may still be thinking, you pastors exaggerate. I've been lusting since I was 13, and I'm still here. Okay, so you don't think your vice is a problem. 
then stop doing it. If you're still in control, then stop. Or anger. Why don't you stop yelling at your kids? Or envy. Why don't you just stop being envious and comparing yourself with others on Facebook? It's not just the sin. It's who I'm becoming. Go back to lust. You are becoming a person who selfishly takes, who objectifies others. Neurologists have shown you're actually rewiring your brain for diminished intimacy and relationship. We are always being profoundly formed by our behaviors, and it will kill you. Vices will kill you without waiting for you to realize it. Vice doesn't wait for your attention. It's working inside you and me right now. I can guarantee that. You and I have habits already that will kill us with or without our realizing it. If you haven't turned there already, turn with me to 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter is near the very end of the Bible, just a little bit before Revelation. And in chapter 1, the Apostle Peter speaks to what happens when we let vice fester in us. And he says two things to unpack this. First, he says that to be a Christian is to escape from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Read verse 4 with me. Verse 4, and pay attention especially to the end of this verse. He says, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. And this is where we want to focus. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. We'll come back to that first part of the verse, but what he's basically saying is that by growing in virtue, we can escape the corruption that is in the world. Now, the word corruption here has the idea of moral, cultural, and physical decay. We are corrupted. There is something structurally wrong with us. So, we are decaying slowly as moral persons, as a culture, as physical bodies, We're on our way to death. Due to sinful desires, he says. Not just sinful actions, sinful desires. These are vices, patterns, feelings, habits of life that control us, that corrupt us, that lead to our decay. And the scary thing is, this is the default. You don't have to escape from being a good person into the corruption of the world. It's not what it says. This is our natural state of life. You don't have to be attentive to the fact that your sinful desires and vices are killing you slowly. It's already happening. And Peter adds to this later on. He lists a number of virtues we read in verses 5 through 7. And then he says this in verse 9, for whoever lacks these qualities they just listed 
is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Whoever lacks these qualities, whoever lacks these virtues, the opposite of virtues are vices. And vices make us nearsighted and blind and cause us to even forget Jesus and the gospel. Vice is not something that simply keeps you from growing. It is something that is actively working to kill you. Even if you're a Christian, working to kill off your faith in Christ. And it isn't going to wait for your attention to do so. So are you paying attention? Do you know what vices have you in their grip? Do you know which ones are growing inside you? And this is the reason we'll be discussing the seven deadly sins, the seven capital vices over the next several weeks. Peering into the vices can be like peering into a mirror. We can come to see better what exactly is in us. Then we can have the right diagnosis and know how to move forward. But regardless of what it is, how you avoid vice, how you escape vice, is by growing in virtue, which brings us to the second reason for us to take seriously this call to run after virtue or be trampled by vice. Namely, because virtue doesn't grow on trees. Run after virtue because it's not like it grows on trees. N.T. Wright puts it this way, the difference between virtue and vice is this, anybody can learn a vice. All you have to do is to go into neutral, slide along with the way stuff is going, and before too long, certain habits of life will have you in their grip. You don't have to think about it, you don't have to try, it'll happen. But virtue you have to think about. You have to make the decision to be a certain kind of person now. Virtue is what happens when you make a thousand small decisions consciously thought out so that on the thousand and first occasion, you will unhesitatingly and instinctively, by second nature, act virtuously. Nobody does it by nature Some people, thank God, do it by second nature. Virtue doesn't grow on trees. Virtue is defined by philosophers like Plato and Aristotle, are moral qualities that when practiced over time become a part of our character, become who we are. And this understanding of virtue was in the Palestinian airs. Jesus roamed around the countryside and taught with Peter right next to him. These philosophers and how they thought about virtue and growing in it provide some of the backdrop to our passage today. Look with me at verse 5. Make every effort, Peter says, to supplement your faith with virtue. Make every effort. Do all you can. Work hard, Peter says, 
to supplement your faith with virtue, to grow in virtue. That's the life Christ followers are called to. Now, we can make a huge mistake here. We can make the mistake of thinking that Peter is simply calling us to try harder, to try harder to be envious the next time we're scrolling down our Facebook feed, to try harder when someone says something nasty to us to be kind in return, to try harder to be virtuous the next time it's needed. But friends, that's not what we're called to not what Peter's talking about. We're not called to try hard, but instead to train hard. What's the difference? Well, imagine you are Captain Sully Sullenberger several years ago. You're in the cockpit of a plane with over 150 passengers. It's a normal day. You take off and climb into the air And all of a sudden, you hear a thud, and you smell cooked goose. Uh, You've hit a flock of geese in midair, and you've lost all engine power. You have two minutes, maybe less, to drop thousands of feet and find a place to land without an engine, or everyone's going to die. If in that moment, you have to pick up an instruction manual, to figure out what to do next. You're still going to be thumbing through it when the plane crashes. If you're a new trainee pilot who just did what you thought might work in the moment without any prior training, who knows what you might do? But because Captain Sullenberg had been flying for 30 years, was a flight instructor, had trained and practiced over and over again, He was able to do the unimaginably difficult instinctively by second nature and landed safely. He did not try in the moment to be a great pilot. He had trained for years on end and was a great pilot. In the same way, we do not simply try to be virtuous, to try to be loving or courageous or diligent or patient in the moment. That doesn't work. You'll end up crashing. We train over a long period of time and become virtuous people. When Peter says to make every effort, he means training, not trying. So commit to careful and intentional training toward virtue. You have to make an intentional decision, a conscious choice to grow in virtue and then commit to a life of training. In the coming weeks, we'll be discussing a virtue with each corresponding vice and how exactly to grow in that virtue, how exactly to train. But for this week, ask yourself, what virtue do I need and want to grow in? Is it kindness, humility, diligence, love, patience, temperance? One way to find this out is to deprive yourself of something convenient and see how you react. Skip coffee one day this week. Don't eat on Tuesday. 
Go to the longest line in the grocery store. Don't buy anything you don't need for a month. See what comes out. Good luck. Because what comes out in those moments, and I think we know this, in our harder moments, what comes out then reveals who we really are, reveals where we have an abundance of virtue and where we lack it. And knowing that is where growth begins. So run after virtue or be trampled by vice because vice doesn't wait for your attention and virtue doesn't grow on trees. And the third and final reason we must take this call from Peter seriously is that Christ doesn't stop at forgiveness. Christ does not stop at forgiveness. Now hear me clearly. The fact that Christ does not stop at forgiveness does not mean that forgiveness is unimportant. As we say every single week, the forgiveness of our sins that Jesus has secured for us by His death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead is the center of the gospel. He freely offers forgiveness by grace alone through faith alone, no strings attached, nothing else required. By faith in Christ, you are forgiven, made right with God. It's not because you're virtuous. We are sinners saved by grace. But if you take that step of faith, if you place your trust in Jesus for the free forgiveness of your sins, that doesn't mean that Christ's work in your life is over. On the contrary, it's just beginning. He doesn't stop at forgiveness as if His work is done and He can leave now. C.S. Lewis, as he often does, can help us to understand this a bit better. This is a familiar quote, but he says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what He is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. You knew you needed forgiveness of sins, a clean slate, a different life direction, and so you expect those things, rightly so. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. It does not seem to make any sense. He hasn't stopped working on me yet. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Jesus in the gospel forgives freely, yet he doesn't stop there. The good news of the gospel is not only and solely that you can be forgiven. It's also that in the midst of that forgiveness, Christ provides everything you need to grow in virtue. He is making you into a palace. 
He is forming you into the kind of person who by nature acts with virtue and goodness. He is making us into virtuous people. We see this in 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4. In those verses it says, His, Jesus's, divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Hear that good news. Through our knowledge of Him, through our knowledge of the gospel, who called us by His own glory and goodness, through these, through His glory and goodness, He has given us His very great and precious promises, the promise of the forgiveness of sins, the promise of eternal life with Him, promise of adoption as sons and daughters, all the promises of the gospel, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. You may taste the virtuous life that God Himself lives. You may become Christ-like, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires, having escaped the vices. In the gospel itself, you and I have the resources. We have everything that we could possibly need to grow and to make progress in virtue. Precisely because of the knowledge that you are forgiven, that you've been made a child of God, that you have eternal life with Him promised to you. Because of all of this, you are released and freed to run after virtue. And you're empowered. Peter says his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. We don't have to sum anything up from ourselves. The power of the Holy Spirit is given to us to make progress in the spiritual life. We grow in virtue only by his divine power, by grace, as the Spirit works in us. Way too often, the story of the Christian, this has been my story, is that, hey, I've said a prayer, Jesus has come into my life, He's forgiven me, and, you know, I've been living life ever since. And we know, you know, growth is supposed to be important, and the Spirit is somehow in that mix but we just haven't thought much about how to make progress in virtue, how to become different people. And we don't take seriously the call to run after virtue or be trampled by vice. We don't make every effort, as Peter calls us to do. We sink back into, well, I'm forgiven. I can stop there. But that's not where Christ stops. In, indulge me with one more analogy. This one given by theologian A.H. Strong. He says this, the steamship whose machinery is broken may be brought into port and made fast to the dock. She is safe, but not sound. Repairs may last a long time. Christ designs to make us both safe and sound. The forgiveness of our sins gives the first safety. Growth in virtue gives the second soundness. 
Don't you want to be sound, to be made whole, to be the virtuous person that your neighbors and your family and your coworkers and your city and your world hungers for you to be? Do we as a church not wish to be the virtuous people, the virtuous community that Kansas City, that the world hungers for? Christ did not come to earth and teach and preach among us and suffer and die for us solely so that we could be forgiven at the end of our lives, go to heaven, and have no impact on our lives in the meantime. Even though that's central, He died and was raised to new life in order to provide us the power, the resources to reflect His glorious image throughout the earth, to be a shining light of virtue in a world that hungers for it. He doesn't stop at forgiveness. That's good news. So, what is our response? Well, it's not to try to earn salvation. You cannot earn salvation. You can only be saved. You can only be forgiven by grace alone through faith alone. Our response is not to feel that there's somehow this new burden on me to earn my Christian stripes, my relationship with Christ. That is a free gift of faith. Instead of earning our response... That's what Peter says, it's effort, which is profoundly distinct from trying to earn. We make every effort to grow in virtue, knowing that Christ has already earned our salvation. He has given us the resources to grow, to run after virtue. But He calls us to run. He invites us to work with Him in building the palace. In conclusion, vice doesn't wait for your attention. You and I right now have habits that will kill us. We want to figure out what those are. They're not waiting for us to realize it. And virtue doesn't grow on trees. It's not something that happens automatically. It takes effort, takes training over time. And finally, Christ doesn't stop at forgiveness. It was never His purpose to forgive us and then leave us in the same state we were when we first met Him. He has come to make us different people, virtuous people. And He has given us everything we need for the task. So run after virtue or be trampled by vice. Let me end by saying this. Virtue is not what happens when you get past the gospel. It's not what you become when you get advanced enough in the Christian life that you can move past the elementary elements of the faith. No, virtue is what happens when you go deeper in the gospel. It's what happens, it's what you become when your day life is more profoundly shaped by the knowledge and the implications of the good news that your sins have been forgiven, that you've been made right with God through Jesus' death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead. 
when your life is shaped by the good news. You become virtuous not when you become legalistic and obey all the rules, but when you become a truly gospel-centered person, then you grow. When you are centered on Christ, then you can avail yourself of all the rich resources that He offers and He provides. Then you begin to look like Him, like a virtuous person. You become the kind of person who just on instinct acts virtuously, the kind of person who goodness just flows out of. So breathe in the gospel afresh today, that by faith your sins are forgiven by Jesus' death and resurrection. Place your trust in Him. Know that He loves you. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for loving us. Thank You for dying for us. We ask that You would give us the grace and the power to run after virtue. Teach us how to run. Teach us how to train. Teach us how to go deeper in Your gospel, to escape from the vices and the death that they bring. Sustain us in our training for virtue. Use these next seven weeks to do that, Lord. Make us more and more like you. We ask that you would get all the glory. Amen.